How many of you guys have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? It's okay to raise your hand if you've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it many times. Um, this isn't part of my sermon or anything. I was thinking of this before I came up here. I was talking to Josh this morning about nerves and anxiety, and which also has nothing to do with the sermon. But I, I just I get very nervous and anxious before I get up here, and I, I relate it to a fight, and it, but not an actual physical fight. It's this internal struggle, and you could relate it to a fight where it's the leading up to it that's worse than the actual fight itself. Thinking about what it's going to be like, what could go wrong, what could go right, and all those things. And then when you finally get up there and you take that first hit, then you're okay, then you're fine. It's kind of like playing in a basketball game or something like that and being really nervous beforehand. I do this every Sunday. I'm really good, really good. 9 o'clock hits, nerves. 9.30 hits, I feel shaky. And then by the time I get up here, I don't think I can make it up to the stage. I unmute it, and then I feel fine. I don't know why. I go through this every Sunday, so it's almost begging for that moment. I love, love the opportunity, though, to get to do this. I'm very thankful for it. And a lot of the end of the message that we're going to have today has to do with thanks. Now, I asked you about Passion of the Christ, and I mentioned all this because you remember the scene in Gethsemane at the start where Jesus and Satan is, is, is tempting him, I guess, and he's there on the ground, or he was, he's standing, and at the end, he's in the form of a snake, and as Jesus is getting all the courage he can get up, he just stomps the head of it right there, and he looks up, and he's, got, he's determined. From that moment on, he's determined. You're not going to make me nervous. You're not going to make me anxious anymore. And he goes through with everything. And I think of that, and it sounds dramatic, but I honestly think of that before I come up here. When I'm back there and I'm praying, I think of everything that he mustered up inside, and he thinks of the enemy, and he just stomps him. He looks up, and he says, it's time. I've created, I, you're here for this purpose. And that's how I kind of feel about being up here. It's like, I created you for this purpose. It took you a while to get there, but you're finally there. Don't let the enemy stop you. Don't let the enemy whisper in your ear certain things, like you're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're past this, that, the other. No one's perfect. And I look at all the people in the Bible. Don't let anyone tell you or bring up your past. That's Satan, that's the enemy, that's the accuser. Now, in our series, The Road to the Cross, we're going to continue that today in part two. Now, part one was how to prove value, and that's what Brother Josh preached last week in his message. And if you didn't see that, uh, we'd love for you to go online at www.fbctoqueen.com, or you can watch it on our Facebook page. And I would encourage you to watch that message and to kind of keep up on what we're talking about in the series that we're in. It's going to lead up to Easter. And it's his journey there. And he knows every step along the way that we talked about that moment in Gethsemane. It's coming. And he knows that every stop of the way he's making. And I keep that in the back of my mind as I was studying through this about, and we're going to be in the book of Luke. And we're going to be talking about the ten lepers and the one Samaritan who was thankful. But I think of as I was going through all this studying, in the back of my mind, I was constantly reminded of he knows where he's going. He knows where he's going to end up on this journey. And how it ends. It ends, in, it ends in victory. It ends in success, which Easter's coming, and we'll be talking, Brother Josh will be talking about that very thing. But that's always in the back of my mind as I'm studying it. Uh, today's message is going to be called The True Miracle. That's what I've titled today's message. And it's going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 17, verse 11, if you would turn in your Bibles with me. And that's page 876 in the Bibles on the pew rack. And like we say every Sunday, if you don't have a Bible, if you know someone that doesn't have a Bible, take that one home. It's yours or theirs. Now, in our passage today, beginning in verse 11, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And we'll pick up in verse 11. 
It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now that's the passage for today. And I want to do a little backdrop on Samaritans and lepers. seeing how that's a lot of the bulk of what we'll be speaking of later on in the sermon. Now, in Samaria, there's a glaring emphasis at the end of this passage on the Samaritan, even being called out by Jesus as this foreigner. So he's called, he's called out. Jesus calls him a foreigner. Why is that? Because Jews weren't exactly fond of anyone from Samaria during the time of Christ. And they viewed Samaritans as the worst kind of human beings, like subhuman. And it, it, there's a deep hatred between them that goes all the way back with Jews and Samaritans, all the way back to the Old Testament. Now, the Samaritans, they're first mentioned during the Persian period at the time of Nehemiah. There was a conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And, after, and that was after the Babylonian captivity. The people of Samaria, they opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and the city walls. So there was friction. There was friction between the Jews and Samaritans during the Persian period on where God should be worshipped. These, uh, these th this, this came even more uh, hostile between them during the, and I didn't know this, honestly, it's probably, I'll just admit to you guys, I didn't know Alexander the Great was before Jesus' time. I didn't know that. I know it now, and that's so cool, and that's why they're Hellenistic Jews. I know what a Hellenistic Jew is. I just thought that happened after Jesus died. Well, I know this now, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but make me feel better. How many didn't know that? Okay, well, I feel better now. All right, so I'm not the only one. But we learned something today. All right. Um, yeah, it came more hostile during the Hellenistic era because during this time, Alexander the Great, he destroyed the Persian Empire forever. And he went on a conquest to spread Greek culture. And that's where you get your term Hellenistic Jew. Uh, the spreading of Greek, of Greek culture is known as Hellenism. Now, the, the Samaritans, they initially supported Alexander the Great. They initially supported him. And later on, there was a group of Samaritans that murdered a governor, of, a Greek governor. So how does Alexander the Great respond to that? He absolutely destroys Samaria. And they all flee to Shechem. That's where they all go to. And that became their holy site. It's been their holy site ever since for the Samaritans in, the, in Shechem. Now, that leads to two major differences with the Samaritans because the Samaritans believe that Yahweh, or God, should be worshipped in Shechem instead of Jerusalem. There's, there's your division right there. And there's a whole lot more divisions. Um, like, not just to where it should be worshipped, but they were invaded by so many different people, Persians, Greeks, so all these different pagan gods and stuff. They not only adopted when the Greeks spread all their stuff with them, they, they inherited their language, they got injected with their culture, their pagan gods, and they started mixing it in with all these things. So they're not really worshipping the right god, the Yahweh. They're, he, they're, they blended all this stuff in. So the Jews, they start calling them half-breeds. 
And that's not a very nice term, but that's, that's where they get the term. That's why they started calling them half-breeds. Uh, we can see examples of this in John, and you don't have to turn there. There will be two other places in Scripture that I do want you to turn, but this isn't one of them. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. You guys know that, sto that story pretty well, the Samaritan at the well, the Samaritan woman. Well, he says something about this very thing right here in verses 20 and 21. And it says, Jesus, or she's saying to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So it doesn't matter if you're worshiping in Shechem, if you're worshiping in Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's coming through the Jews. It's coming through Christ. So that's one example of it. So we have, uh, they, they argue where God should be worshipped and the injection of other cultures. They couldn't stand each other. They would, the Jews would go all the way around Samaria just so they didn't have to go through it to where they're going. They would take an extra long way around to avoid them. And, with, and also so they would avoid coming in contact with any Samaritans whatsoever. So we're starting to get the point they can't stand each other. They don't like each other. They despise each other. Let's move on. Now let's talk about leprosy. I'm going to talk about leprosy just for a second. And while I'm talking about this, if you guys would, turn to Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. And I'm going to talk about this just for a second, and then we'll read Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. That's in page 91 in your Bibles. Uh, some of the symptoms of leprosy ranges from white patches on the skin to running sores and to the loss of figures and toes. The World Health Organization says that this disease is transmitted through droplets from the nose and mouth. It is an infectious disease that causes severe disfiguring, skin sores, nerve damage in the arms, legs, and skin all around your body. And today there's no real issues with, effort, uh, with leprosy because of the modern advancements we have in the medical field. So we really don't have that big of an issue with it anymore. It's pretty much gone. But it was a death sentence 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' day, you got leprosy, you knew it wasn't going to end good for you. And it was, a, it was a problem. So much so that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about it, and he gave them this big list of laws on what to do with it and dealing with it in chapter 13 um, of Leviticus. And it goes into great depth and to do what you're supposed to do concerning leprosy in that chapter. We're not going to read all of chapter 13. We're just going to read verses 45 and 46 uh, with the people or the person that is afflicted by this disease. I'm going to read to it. Now, verses 45 and 46 is for someone that has it, that has actually, I guess you'd say, been diagnosed or recognized as having this disease. Now, in 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So you're cast away from society. When you talk to somebody, you have to talk with your mouth, with your hand over your mouth. Unclean, unclean. You talk about feeling ostracized or feeling like you're not part of something. These guys, not only were going to die in a horrible way, they didn't have anybody there to take care of them. So, yeah, it's not only a death sentence, you're going to die in an absolutely miserable way. And you're not going to have your family and friends there and your loved ones to be there to see you through it. I, that'd be the hardest thing for me, not having Amanda and Sawyer and Bella or my mom and dad there 
to at least check on me or see what's going on, to go through it alone or with two or three strangers that I have no idea who they even are that have the same thing going on I do. Imagine this scenario. You wake up to the smell of breakfast cooking. In your mind, you're thinking about everything there is to be done that day. You hear your kids playing, getting ready for the day. You get out of bed, you stretch out, and you're going to pick out what you'll wear. As you're getting dressed to go out to eat breakfast with your family, you see something. You notice a patch of skin that's not quite colored like the rest. You try not to be over-alarmed, but your mind immediately goes to the worst. You call for your spouse. Together, you examine the patch of discolored skin. As you're examining it, you can see the panic start to set in on each other's face. Out of fear from spreading it to anyone you love or your friends, you both agree to go to have the priest examine it. Upon examination, the priest immediately recognizes it as leprosy. He knows that he's seen it too many times. He knows exactly what you have. Your heart starts racing. You look over to your spouse and children, knowing this very may well be your last time seeing one another. No more hugs and kisses. No more hanging out the house together, doing things together. This is the final goodbye. You don't get a chance to go back to your house because you have leprosy. You don't have a chance to go back and say goodbye to your friends. Whoever's there in that moment is the last people you're going to see before you have to leave the community and go on your own. Go on your own. With your kids and spouse weeping, you begin to walk away. Walking away to slowly die a miserable death without ever seeing them again. What's even worse is you'll know that they'll continually have this traumatic event on their mind every night. You know that they're going to lose sleep over it. You know it's going to torment them just as much as it's tormenting you, which is even harder on you as you're staying in bed at night. But you have to leave. You don't have a choice. You eventually come across some others who have leprosy as well. This will be the company you'll keep until your disease has taken you. And even though you're a Samaritan and they're Jews, you stick together. Tragic events have a funny way of bringing people that do not get along together. I've seen on 9-11, you couldn't see a single vehicle that didn't have an American flag on that. It didn't matter what party you're with. I've seen everybody come together. In a flood, when it's rising, animals of prey and animals are, of predators and prey can be together, but they won't turn on each other because they're worried about the bigger problem, the bigger issue at hand. They'll stay up there together until it's all over, and then everything kind of continues back to normal. Tragic events have a funny way of having people and things come, come together, come along, that normally just do not get along or aren't meant to get along. Day after day, you long for your families as you slowly deteriorate physically and emotionally. Then one day, they heard a band, all the guys that were in the camp with you, they hear a band of people coming. Some men were heard speaking to a man named Jesus. Could it be? Could it be the Jesus that I've heard about? Could it be the Jesus of Nazareth? The man in whom we've heard of healing the sick, the blind, and the lame. And the closer they came, the more you realize that, yes, it is truly him. Desperation. Everyone began to cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That's the only hope we have.
I think there's a lot of us today that need that same thing. We have leprosy, we just don't know it yet. I'm not talking about the skin disease. We're separated in our hearts. We need to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And they realized it and they cried out. I'm going to go back to verse in Luke in our original text in 17. I'm going to read it. You guys can turn back there. Luke 17, verse 11. And I'm going to read it as you're turning. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, and I told you guys all this, that scenario, to kind of personalize it, to get it in your minds what it's like to be that Samaritan, to bring you up to the point of where we are now with this Samaritan in Luke. And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That gives it so much more context than just a fly through it reading. Oh, these poor ten lepers, they want Jesus to have mercy on them. It's different when it's you. It's different when you think of it going through your eyes. You're the one getting kicked out of your family, out of your home, out of your town, away from your temple, and you can't go back ever again. The food's probably not the same, and that's the least of your worries. And I always think about that, trying to personalize things so that it becomes more you can see through the eyes of this leper and these guys that are in these colonies the desperation that they would have. The fact that they addressed Jesus as master, that shows them that they weren't just looking for a handout. They weren't just looking for some money. They were looking for a miracle. They had heard about Jesus, and so they called him master. They all cried out to him, all ten of them, they cried out to him because they were looking for a healing because they had heard that Jesus could heal. They were looking for an absolute miracle they were looking for a miracle healing. This would not only spare them from a horrific death, but this would reunite them with their families. This would reunite them with the, the people that they go see at the temple. This would give them access to places like the, like the market. I was going to say supermarket, but they didn't have those back then. They had like access to like, like places like the market and amongst your friends and getting to go in and out of each other's houses. You'd have all that back. And that's what they so desperately wanted. And the things that they, that they took for granted their whole lives... I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. You take it for granted until something really, really bad happens. And then all of a sudden, you see those small things as a normal day as being a blessing from God. You start seeing thankful, being thankful in the small things that most people take for granted. And I'm sure these guys saw that 100%. They could, they could definitely back that up. Now, upon seeing Jesus, they lifted up their voices. And from some commentaries that I've read and listened to, that could have been a quite painful thing too because it affects the nose, the eyes, the throat. It causes ulcerations in the organs and in the throat. So they could have had ulcers and it could have been very painful to lift their voices up to where Jesus could hear them. But painful or not, they lifted up their voices to Jesus. Have you noticed that Jesus, he would show mercy to those who we would absolutely show no mercy to. He showed mercy, love, kindness to people in society that we never would even think about like those people they are where they deserve to be they're they've got what they deserved you don't want what you deserve we'd all be in hell if we got what we deserved it's only because of jesus is the reason we're not going to hell jesus never turned his nose up to anybody 
He never once said, I'm better than you. And he's better than everybody here when he walked the earth. He never once had that prideful sense of, I'm better than you. I'm holier than you. All of this that you see that you think you own is mine. In reality, it's, it's Christ. That's his. It was created for him, through him, and by him. But he let them think that it was theirs. He let them think that they were better, even though he knew he never stuck his nose up because Jesus is love. He is kindness. He is mercy. He showed it to them. He even showed it to the ones who crucified him. We see that in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the process of being crucified, Jesus is still loving. Jesus is still kind. Jesus is still merciful. And I know most of us, given being put in that situation, that's the last thing we would be, is loving, merciful, kind. I know what we, most of us would be like, get them, God, get them. Give them what they deserve. They stole my stuff. Give them what they deserve. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. Let's keep that in mind when dealing with others and also others who may be seeking to do you harm, others that may have already done you harm. Let's keep that in mind. Let's show them the love, the mercy, and kindness of Christ. And it'll probably weird them out because they'll know, like, they don't like me, but they're being super nice to me. And over time, they'll know it's because Christ lives within you. They'll be like, wow, that stuff that he actually talks about, the church when he, where he's always going, or she, it's really having an effect on them. No, it's Christ having an effect on you. Like we always said, if you hang out with someone long enough, you're going to start to talk like them. You're going to start to act like them. You're going to start to emulate the things that's going in. Well, that's the same thing with Jesus. If you're in his word and you're with him every day, you're going to start speaking like him. You're going to start acting like him. You're going to start taking on his traits, fruits of the spirit. So let's show them the love, mercy, and kindness of Christ. So after Jesus, he had heard the ten lepers asking him to have mercy on them. Jesus tells them something. Let's read verse 14. Jesus tells them something. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. Here, Jesus, he put their faith and obedience to the test, all 10 of them. He didn't just walk up like in other miracles where he'd walk up to a leper and he touches their face. He didn't yell out, you're cured. Hey, it's gone. Now go see the priest. He said, go and see the priest. He didn't tell them, you're automatically cured. He didn't walk up and cure them. So they had to have a, a measure of faith just to go. It'd be easy for me to go, I still have all this leprosy. I'm, I can't go to the priest like this. I can't walk up to him. He's just going to turn me back around. They had to think, Jesus told me to do it. I'm going to do it. So as they're walking, they become, they're healed. As they're going there on their way. So it took a measure of faith just for them to look at it and go, he said to do it, so they do it. So it took a measure of faith. They all had a little measure of faith. The ten lepers, they didn't hesitate, and I can't blame them. These men, they had to act as though they were cured, even though they weren't. As you see that at the end of verse 14, and as they went, they were cleansed. That's what I'm talking about. They were actually being cured as they're walking, because of the end of verse 14. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now let's re continue reading verses 15 and 16. It says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. 
That's big. An overwhelming sense of gratitude was felt by one out of the ten lepers. Only one of them. It happened to be a Samaritan. The moment that he noticed he was cured, he didn't run straight to the priest like the other nine. He didn't just go to the priest. He turned back. He came back to Jesus. Even if he hadn't turned back to Jesus, upon examination, he would have been found clean. He would have been able to rejoin the community. He would have been able to rejoin his family. But when he saw that he was healed, he turned back. He turned back with a loud voice, and he fell at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And here's the thing. He came to Jesus in humility. If anyone knew anything about Samaria and Jerusalem and the Jews... No one would have blamed the Samaritan or would have looked past it being the Samaritan. They would have thought he would have been the last one out of the ten to even look back at him. But he was the first and only one out of the ten. No one would have blamed him. But the Samaritan was the first one. Samaritan knew that this this was no ordinary Jewish man. He knew that the one he had cried out to and called master was truly his master. He knew it wasn't just some Jewish rabbi, some healer, like the other ones probably took it as, and they turned and left. Maybe the other ones, maybe the other guys, and I just now thought of this, maybe it's this. Maybe the other nine turned around for a different reason. Maybe it wasn't because they were so overwhelmed. Maybe they knew that, hey, those other 12 guys that are following Jesus around, that might be me, and I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. To follow Jesus, I'm going to have to leave everything. To follow Jesus... I'm going to have to totally surrender everything. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. I just want to go to my family, my friends, and do everything else and eat the good food. I don't know if I'm ready for that life just yet. So they turned, they left. That might have been it. They may not have been ready for that commitment level yet. They just took their healing and left. But the miracle healing is exactly what the Samaritan got. He was, instead of being overwhelmed and in awe by the miracle itself, like the other nine were, he was overwhelmed and in awe of the source by which the miracle came, and that's Jesus Christ. That's who he was in awe of. That's who he was overwhelmed by because he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. He knew where it came from. He fell on his face in front of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I have a very good feeling that he knew exactly who Jesus was in that moment. There was a miracle healing, and behind that was the true miracle Jesus Christ, God who became man, who became flesh, lived for us, died for all of our sins. He rose in three days so that we could go to heaven just by simply believing that he is who he says he is. That's the true miracle. This right here, I'll die with whatever God gives me as long as he's covered me. I don't care. I'm sure that leper at that moment thought, wow, if he can do this, he's God. I don't even really care about that anymore. I'm very thankful. And he fell on his face in thanks. But he understood how powerful and what had happened, just who was behind that. The true miracle is Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, it says this, For God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name, of na- or the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and, con- and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With all of this gratitude and thanks to be given, the question has to be asked, where are the nine? Where'd the other nine go? With all that gratitude, 
Let's continue reading verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? I have to think that this is a very depressing line of questioning. He's, he, this isn't a, it's a disappointing line of questioning. He's very disappointed in those nine. Because they just took their miracle and they never uttered a word of thanks. Now I believe, I believe that the nine that they were so consumed by their newfound happiness of being able to reunite with their family and their friends and their new lease on life that they lost sight of where the miracle came from. It's just they saw it, poof, there it is, and that they couldn't wait. And they just lost sight of where it came from. Is that not the case with many of us today? I'm guilty of it, that's for sure. To pray for something and then either suddenly it happens for you or eventually it happens and you just go on your merry way, me included, without ever truly thanking God for what he has done for us or have done for you. We have so much to be thankful for that God's given us. From the air that we pulled in at birth to now and everything in between, we have so much to be thankful for. And I thought about that as I was going through all this. I started thinking about, name them one by one. I started thinking about everything that God has done in my life up to this point. And even the things that at the time I didn't understand it and I thought and I was agonizing over it, I understand it was all for my good, the good and the bad. We have so much to be thankful for. He gave his son for us. That right there in and of itself is enough to be thankful for. You know, if I live another 70 years and I never receive another blessing, I'll, have, I'll consider myself blessed just because of one thing. Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and he sacrificed his life for me. I don't need anything else. That's all I need. If I lived another, and I'm 37, so 70 years, you do the math, that's pretty old. No offense to anybody that might be close to me right now. But I mean, that's, I mean, I would still consider myself blessed. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a thing. He's given us everything we have, and there's nothing we can do to give it back. All we can do is be grateful. All we can do is be thankful. And that's just it. He loves to see us happy. Jared, you love being outside? You like the outdoors? Check this out. Look at all these mountaintops I've made. Look at all these forests. Look at all these lakes, rivers, and valleys that you can go in and just enjoy. I've made it for you. Go have fun in it. And it's nothing I could ever give him back. I can't make that stuff. It's, he made it for me. But to be grateful and thankful for it, it makes me think of it this way. For you that have kids in here, how great it is to see the face on your child or your kids when you take them to an amusement park or a theme park or resort or just something or get them something for Christmas and you just see their eyes just light up and I mean it's just that unfiltered, pure, unashamed joy that it doesn't matter if mom and dad's videotaping me, they act crazy anyways because they're so excited to be there or to have gotten that. And it's nothing that they can give you back. They can't give you a, a resort back to that or a uh, ticket to that resort, they can't give it, but you don't want that. You don't want them to have to give you something in return. You give it to them because you love them, because they'll enjoy it. And I think as Christians, as children of God, that's how God views it. And what's the best thing in the world when you don't have to ask for their gratitude? When your children come up to you and you're like, thank you, mom and dad. Thank you so much for doing this for us. That's awesome. That's one of the best feelings ever. When, you don't, when it's unprovoked, where you don't have to ask them, well, 
say thank you. Like, no, when they come up there and they're truly, truly thankful. And you know your kids. You know when they're actually grateful for something. And that's one of the best feelings ever. And I know that's how God is with us as his children. He gives us things that there's no way we're ever going to be able to give back to him, ever, in a million lifetimes. We'll never be able to give it back to him. And he doesn't expect us to. But just to be grateful, be thankful for what we have in life. That's it. Just to be grateful and thankful. And I've noticed also that the, the more grateful you are for things and the more you tell God, thank you for this, thank you for my family, my friends, my job, for my salvation. If you start thinking, you start naming them off, your outlook on life is a lot more positive than dwelling on the negative. God, why did you let this happen? Why is this person working beside me every day? Maybe he put them beside you because they need to hear the gospel too. It doesn't matter if you, if you like them or not. I'm sure Jesus had his feelings about Judas, but he washed his feet. He lived out everything in front of him. And I believe we're called to do the same thing. Knowing what those guys are going to do to him, he still loved and was kind to them. He loves us. And he cares about us. Now, speaking of gratefulness and attitude, let's get back to the Samaritan man. And we'll be coming close to a close here. Where Jesus just healed, and let's see what Jesus has to say to him in verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now in the King James Version, in verse 19, it says it like this. And he said unto him, and check this out. I, had to, I didn't know how to put this into context until I read the King James Version. I was like, that's it. That is it. And he said unto him, arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. His faith made him whole. They, had come, they, they, had, they all had a measure of faith, or they wouldn't have obeyed and been healed. So they all had a measure of faith. But the Samaritan's faith made him whole. What do you mean, Jared? What does that mean to be whole? There's plenty of people that believe Jesus is real. There's plenty of atheists that say, yes, Jesus was a real man. If you do your historical and you look back at history, Jesus walked the earth. I agree with that. But I don't believe in the deity of Christ. I don't believe he was actually God. He's a real man. Or some people say, yeah, he was a prophet, but he wasn't God. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. Like he actually walked the earth, yes. So there are people that will give them, that will say that he was here, that he actually walked the earth. So the people that believe in him doesn't mean that they put their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior, that he is part of the Trinity. As I'm sure that some of those other nine, they didn't care either way, or they just thought he was just some kind of Jewish rabbi or healer. That's why they were not made whole like the Samaritan. He placed not only his faith and trust with his physical body to Jesus Christ, he placed his faith and trust with his soul to Jesus Christ when he turned back to him. Jesus knows his heart. The Samaritan was fully restored. And this reminds me of the thief on the cross. As I was reading through this, that came to my mind. So I looked into it. And that's the last place we're going to turn to today. It's in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. It's just a few pages over. Uh, page 884. That's Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? 
save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus said, or, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. For the Samaritan, I believe that this was that kind of moment. It was that kind of moment. The moment where he turned to Jesus. Like the thief on the cross, he was paradise bound from that moment because he turned everything to Jesus. And he was fully restored, as was the thief on the cross. Fully restored being his soul. He was like the thief on the cross and that he had been forgiven and made whole. So I got to ask you guys a question. Is, are you like the other nine? The other nine, where you just take it, thanks and I'm out. Do you receive all of God's blessings with little gratitude? Perhaps the other nine, like I said earlier, maybe they didn't turn back because they knew what it would take to follow Jesus. They had heard of the things that had happened in his life, and they said, you know what, if I follow him, if I actually turn around and go back to Jesus, he's going to call me. He's going to say, be a pastor. You're going to be a missionary. You're going to be this. You're going to do that all in my name. And it might be so. That might actually be the case. But in a lot of, t in a lot of cases, it's not that. It's, you're going to be alive for me, all right, but you're going to be that at your workplace. You're going to be that in your family's life. You're going to be that when you go over to your in-laws. He's going to call you to follow him, but you can follow him anywhere you go. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. Is that you? Have you given Jesus your whole heart? Is he the master of your life? Maybe you've never called him as, as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to ask him Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. Maybe you need to make him the Lord of your life. You, you know all the lingo. You know how to come to church. You know how to talk the talk and walk the walk, but Jesus sees your heart. He knows what's really in there. You can fake me all day long, fake me out. I'm not hard to fake out, but you're not going to fake out Jesus. There's nothing you can do, no way you can look or speak. He's going to see straight to your heart. And that's what he's going to judge, if you're covered by his blood or not. Because if you're not covered by his blood, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And that's it. So if that's you, Brother Josh and I will be here up at the front to pray with you. Maybe you need to come up here to the altar and give God thanks and praise and be grateful for what he's done for you. Maybe you just need to come up here and just do that or to pray for someone else. This is a time of invitation. If the Holy Spirit's prompting you to move, as Josh told me one time, if God's prompting you to move, you need to move. Y'all pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for allowing me to be a mouthpiece for you. Lord, I pray that everyone here would be blessed by the, the message that you've given me to share with them. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here, most importantly and above all, that if they do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, if they just know you in passing, like, oh yeah, I know Jesus. I know who he is. That's not the real question. The question is, do they know you or do you know them? Lord, I pray that 
if they haven't called out to you, if they haven't, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. Lord, I pray that they would get that straight this morning. Lord, I pray that as we go through our week, that we would bring to mind all the things that there is to be thankful for, all the things that there is to be grateful for. Just the fact that you allow us to be and the fact that you gave your son Jesus to die for us is everything that we'll ever need. And everything else, Lord, is just in abundance. Lord, I, I thank you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. I thank you for the church family that you surrounded me with, with my wife and kids, with my mom, my dad, my brother, and my grandparents. Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for allowing me to get up here and give your message to these people, your people. Lord, you alone deserves all praise. You be the praise, honor, and glory forever. In your son's name, amen.